0: Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at Kingstreetchurch.com. Well, good morning. I am happy to see all of you. I hope that you are doing well and that you are um, prepared to receive God's Word. And, uh, I mean, what does that mean, to be prepared to receive God's Word? Um, uh, To be prayerful, to be open, to be receptive, uh, to not argue with it, to not despise prophetic utterances as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. You couldn't possibly be prepared for everything because sometimes you don't even know how it is that God is going to impact your heart. But I pray that as you sit in your chair, you are... Um, open and willing to receive his word this morning and to not run and turn from it but to turn to it We'll be in James chapter 1 verses 13 through 18 this morning James 1: 13 through 18 and I'll read it for us let no one say when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. You know, much of our lives in this world is going to be discerning between truth and falsehood. And James tells us in verse 16, do not be Deceived, my beloved brethren. He wants the children of God to not be fooled and carried away by lies. And since this will be a reoccurring battle in our souls, there's no wonder why it's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. God's Word is constantly urging us to hold on to His truth and to deny the lies of a sinful world or even worse, our own sinful hearts. There are many passages that We could read to prove the point, but I'll just mention one this morning. This is why Paul tells pastors in Ephesians 4 to equip the church. And he tells pastors to do that until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So you can see there the emphasis on the truth of the faith. And truly knowing Jesus, having true knowledge of Him. And the question that we can ask is, what does unity of the faith, what does the truth of our faith do? What is the outcome of true knowledge of the Son of God? Well, he tells us in verses 14 and 15 in Ephesians 4. Paul says, as a result... Meaning as a result of the unity of the truth, as a result of proper knowledge, right knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So you can see there in verse 14, there's a threat of us as people being tossed here and there by waves. And the waves tossing us to and fro are caused by winds the winds of false doctrine, the winds of the trickery of men the winds of deceitful scheming. You can sort of feel the lies there when you read that. You can see all of the deceit. But Paul doesn't want you to be deceived. And so he says, but speak the truth in love. That's how we grow. That's how we attain a unity of faith. Preaching the truth is how we come to a true knowledge of the Son of God. And this is how we avoid being deceived so you can see in Ephesians 4 that God's word is telling us don't be deceived but instead cling to his truth now unless you've reached complete perfection this battle to deny the lies of the world by clinging to the truth of God will remain until you die or at least until Christ returns there's not a day that you can take off There's not an hour that you can let down your guard. There's not a minute that you can sit it out. And the call here is for more than just intellectually agreeing with facts. The call is to be ruled by those facts in your heart. Some of the most deceived people on the planet are those who know the truth in their mind, but their hearts are disturbed by lies. They think one set of standards, but they're controlled by another. And so it's one thing to have a brain that's unmovable by the waves of deceit. But it's another thing for this to be true of your heart. James says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And that command in verse 16 is surrounded on both sides by truth that we need to know. And it's truth for the tempted. Truth for those who experience temptation. So far, the first 12 verses that we've covered are about going through trials, circumstances that are hard, in which we need to persevere. And that word for trial in verse 2 and in verse 12 is the same word that's used for temptation in verse 13. So it could mean temptations, And while the same word is being used in both places, they're talking about two different things. In verse 2 and verse 12, it's discussing trying circumstances. But verse 13 is discussing our temptations to sin. It seems that James knows in the midst of our trials, we're prone to seek relief by sinful means. And when we feel the temptation to sin in the midst of hardship... James wants to give us a few key truths to cling to. We need to not be deceived. And so this morning we're going to look at beautiful, comforting, convincing, unapologetic truth for the tempted. When you're tempted to sin, James 1, 13 through 18 is God's truth for you to hold on to and to not be deceived. So James gives us truth in two categories in our passage. He gives us truth about us. And he gives us truth about God. So do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Learn today from God's Word some truth about you and some truth about God. And when you see the devastating truth about us... And the marvelous truth about God, my prayer is that your hearts would flee from sin and that your hearts would rest in the gracious arms of a loving Savior. So verse 16 is the command that we've seen so far. Do not be deceived. That's verse 16. But the verses before that command give us truth so that we won't be deceived. And the verses before verse 16 gives us truth about us truth about us. And so this is where we'll begin. So let's read verses 13 through 15 as a reminder. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, there are several things that we can learn about ourselves and our sin in these verses. The first truth that we face is the certainty of temptation. The certainty of temptation. Verse 13 does not say if he's tempted. It says when he's tempted... Let no one say when he is tempted. So temptation to sin will follow us all to the grave. And this is a lesson that we need to learn about ourselves in this life. Because there are some people who believe that they've reached a sort of perfection. That they're no longer experiencing any temptation to sin. But in reality, that only reveals their sin of pride. Either this person truly believes that they're perfect revealing their pride, or they're simply unaware of how they're sinful, revealing their ignorance. And James wants us to avoid being deceived in both ways this morning. And so he assumes and he infers that you and I will be tempted. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's true As Christians, we have been set free from our captivity to sin. Christians have died to sin. We're given power to overcome it in this life. But until the Lord glorifies us and changes us in a twinkling of an eye, which will be a marvelous day, we still have inner parts of us that are corrupted. Parts of us that need to be sanctified. Areas that need to become more and more like Christ. And if you know and love God, it's not even necessary for me to prove this to you from the Bible because you already know the texts and you already know your own heart. You wouldn't dare say that you're a moral equivalent to Jesus. But I'll give you a few texts anyways. And they'll confirm that temptation to sin is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's a matter of when for the most sanctified and experienced Christian on the planet. In one passage, Paul describes temptation as common to man. 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, "No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man." So temptation is not an uncommon thing. So it certainly isn't a non-existent thing. Instead, temptation is common. It's to be expected. It's what we do experience and what we will experience. But I think the most fascinating passage about this describes this battle going on in our souls. And this is such an important truth about ourselves. You find it in Galatians 5.17. It describes the battle in us between the spirit and the flesh. It says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. Get the image there. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Have you ever wondered why you have temptation? As a Christian, have you ever questioned why you know what to do? And though you desire to do it, There's an intense battle to do it. There's a thing that you see, and this thing would be good. You see the good thing, you desire the good thing, but you fail so often to do the good thing. In fact, you're often tempted to do the bad thing, and it's a struggle, and you're left to conclude that living life with yourself is immensely difficult. Don't we all scream with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, James doesn't want us to be deceived. Temptation is common. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And Paul just taught us in Galatians that it's because we have a battle that's waging war inside of us. Our flesh sets its desire against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. And as a Christian, you experience this daily, hourly, minutely. Some of you can't go five seconds. That's how I feel. Five seconds without being disturbed by the flesh. And when the urge to look upon the bad thing or think about the bad thing or do the bad thing comes, it's temptation. It's our flesh utterly opposed to the Spirit of God. The truth that James wants us to learn is the certainty of this frustrating temptation. The indwelling sin is still there and will be there until we're perfected. It's true. God grows us. There's hope. God sanctifies us. He causes us to overcome sin. In the course of our life, certain sins may be less desirable then than they were today. We're given power to say no in certain areas, whereas before we served sin with every bit of our being. We were slaves to it. God's removed all of that if you're a Christian. We now have the Spirit. Imagine just having the flesh waging war. But now as a Christian, you have the Spirit in you waging war against the flesh. But still the flesh is there. And you ought to expect temptation to come. Practically what that means is don't be caught off guard. Don't assume something about yourself that isn't true. Don't be deceived to think temptation is simply a matter of if, when it's actually a matter of when. John Owen said proactively, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Wage war against it. Know that there's a spiritual battle waging war deep inside of your chest. Don't take the night off. Plant your face in the Bible. Pray until tears stream down your cheeks. Confess your sins to one another. Sing God-exalting truth and praise. Why? Because temptation will surely come. A second truth to learn from this passage is about who to blame for temptation. With all these frustrating temptations and inner battles taking place in our lifetime, we might be deceived to think someone else is to blame beside us. Anger and bitterness and complaint break out into this age old crime of shifting the blame. I think about Eve, who ate from the tree, she was enticed by her own lust for the fruit it would make her wise. And it looked delicious. Ain't no doubt about it, she was tempted. But when God approaches her, look how easily she points her finger and says it's the serpent's fault. And let's not forget that God questioned Eve after her husband threw her under the bus. Adam does one worse than his wife. Adam blames not only his wife, but God himself. When God approaches Adam, Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Now, what was the point of Adam saying that God gave him the woman? Had God forgotten? Was there another woman in the garden that Adam needed to clarify who it was? Of course not. Adam was saying that she tempted me, God, and I would have never been tempted if you had not given her to me. Don't we despise it when our children blame their siblings instead of taking responsibility? Don't we recoil in disgust when a criminal refuses to apologize or casts the blame on others? When a person breaks the law and tries to blame someone else and sits there with a smug look on their face? we despise this in one another, how might God feel about it when He sees it in us? Especially when we blame Him. So James is clear in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God made me like this. God's to blame for my weaknesses. It's God's fault that I struggle with that sin. Don't be deceived in this way. James tells us the truth. God is not to be blamed for our temptation to sin. He's even less to blame when we actually do it. For God, look at his reasoning, cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Don't say I'm being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil and He Himself does not tempt anyone. The point that James is making is, that, is, is not that God won't ever put you through a trial. We will be in circumstances that will test our faith. But when we're enticed by the look and the taste and the smell of sin, it's not God enticing us. He is not to blame. Calvin says there's a massive difference between God drawing out what is already in our hearts and inwardly alluring us into evil lusts. Sam Albury says my circumstances may be the occasion for my sin, but they're not the cause of it. God does not tempt anyone with evil. Because he cannot be tempted by evil. So, all the flesh waging war in your soul, the desire to do the sinful thing, God is not the author of any of it. God is pure and holy and righteous. So, don't be deceived into thinking that he's secretly conjuring up ways to make you desire and enjoy and love sin. He's not. So, who is? You. We're to blame for our sin, not our circumstances, not our children, not our wives, not our fellow church members, and certainly not our God. James gives us the hard truth. We are to blame for our temptations. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When are you tempted? When your own lusts entice you. The truth of the matter is that we're tempted by sin because we lust after it. Which means to desire after it. We covet. We hate. We lie. We grow bitter. We're tempted. Why? Because it's tempting. And it's tempting because we desire it. And we desire it because we like it. Just ask yourself the question. If you were perfectly holy, would temptation tempt you? If God is holy and cannot be tempted by evil, then what does it say about us if we can be tempted by evil? it says that we're not holy. And this is the very premise of our need to grow in holiness because parts of us are not holy, even as Christians. And those parts still like sin. And so we're tempted to sin. That's a hard truth about ourselves that we need to face. That we're to blame for our temptations. And it's important, friends, that... You know this because it drastically changes how you'll react to your temptations. It's destructive and harmful to never recognize this truth. How many marriages have been destroyed because the other person was the problem, not me? How many friendships demolished because of what they did? I mean, I see a whole world filled with people who go from relationship to relationship, job to job, church to church because of others. Never recognizing that they are the common denominator. And that maybe there's something wrong with them. We live in a culture that wants to blame and blame and blame and never look within our own hearts. And look, I know that the world is full of other sinners just like us. So I'm not saying there aren't problems in the world. But the issue is when all of your problems are because he did it and she did it instead of I did it. If you can come to recognize that you're tempted because of you and your lusts, then you can slow down and you can rightly assess what's really wrong. James wants us to know that the issue is in me so that I can address the issue and I can become more like Christ The blaming game is not only inaccurate, it's unhelpful. It won't change anything about your heart. But if you accept that the issue is you and your lust, then you can address it. And you can pray for God's grace. And you can seek his word. Just think about this illustration. Just a sentence, so it's not a lot, but... Just like there's no deadly sickness that ever goes away by diagnosing it incorrectly, no temptation will ever go away by blaming others. So let's not be deceived into an inaccurate and unhelpful diagnosis. Let's diagnose the cause of our sin correctly. It's us. We are to blame for our temptations. We're tempted Because of our own desires. So we've seen two truths about ourselves. The certainty of temptation, it will happen. And that we're to blame for our temptation. Now I want us to see quickly a very counterproductive truth about temptation. I want you to see the victim of temptation. Look at verse 14 again. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice that the cause is his own lust. The cause of my sin is me and my desires. But this text also teaches that I'm the victim. Because what do my lusts do? James says they carry away and entice me. You're tempted because of your lusts and your lusts try to entice you. The language used for carried away enticed was was used in that day to describe baiting and trapping an animal. You carry away and entice it and lure it in for the kill. So just imagine that you and your lusts take a little trip into the woods and you set a trap with the bait of sin attached to it. And you set this bait and trap for the sake of baiting you. We're both the cause of our sin and the victim of it. That's what it's like living with yourself. That's what it's like living with me. It explains the horrendous pits of our hearts. But we can't be deceived on this point. We need to see it. We need to know what it is that we produce and how our lusts ultimately attack ourselves so that when we accept what we provide for ourselves, enticement and traps into sin, that's what we provide for ourselves. If we accept that and understand it and not be deceived about that point, then we'll have a greater love and appreciation for what God provides for us. This leads to our last truth about ourselves, and that's the destination of our temptations. We certainly will be tempted because of indwelling sin. We're to blame for our temptations because of our lusts, and we're the victims of our own lustful selves. Lastly, our lust enticing us to sin has the destination of death. Sin is not a small matter. James describes it in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We all know what it feels like to lust after something wicked. It could be sexual lust for another person. Maybe covetous lust for another's things. Some have a gluttonous lust for another bite. Or perhaps a hateful lust for another's life. We all know the feeling of sinful desire. And as we've seen, our own sinful desires seek to entice and entrap and ensnare ourselves. The goal of the lust is to have you think on it, to meditate on it, to desire it more, and to commit yourself to do it. And once we fall into this trap, sin is full bloom and the result of sin is always death. James wants us to see the origin of sin. He wants it to treat it seriously. If this is what it leads to, he wants us to cut it off at its conception. When the thought of temptation arises, when the lust first shows itself like a small blade of grass that was just planted, it needs to be cut away. All else leads to destruction. It leads to death. Sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that we could get away with just a little small sin. You ponder it. You think on it. The desire is there. And so you dabble in it just enough to indulge yourself, but not enough to get caught. Not enough to be a big problem, we tell ourselves. We'll pay close attention to this passage. Don't be deceived about the destination of temptation. Nothing here says anything about a small or a big sin. It says nothing about sort of trying the sin versus diving in head first. James makes a point about all sin, big or small, a little bit of it or a lot of it. Its path is destruction. Its destination is death. And you ought to take it seriously. As Christians, we're positionally alive in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus himself has defeated the grave and we're united to him in his life. But don't we all know that even as followers of Christ, the depths of despair, whenever we start indulging in sin, don't we all know this? There's nothing life-giving at all about it. Our desires find it appealing, but after we've had just a little taste, we're reminded once again of how bitter it is and how all it does is seek to harm and to destroy us. It seeks to kill. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know that James isn't off of his rocker here. Paul also teaches that the wages of sin is death, our sin brings destruction. It pushes for eternal death. And this can be described as nothing other but eternal separation from God under his wrath and condemnation. And I fear that this truly is the depth of our wickedness that our own desires are to blame for our sin. And our own desires lie in wait to entice us. And the ultimate destination of our own desires enticing us is death, separation from God. That's what we want. We lie in wait to entice ourselves with the opportunity to be separated from God at the gain of a temporary pleasure. And those who are apart from Christ are separated from Him. Our sinful hearts are happy to make that deal. This is why we need a Savior. This is why Jesus came. Fully God fully man, to live the life that we never could, and to pay the penalty of the sin that we deserved in our place. While our proper payment for sin is death, Jesus took death and defeated it on the cross in the place of sinners, so that all who trust in him, all who cling to him, all who love him and his sacrifice for them will be saved, and death will be no More. So my prayer is that you would heed God's word this morning, that you would take seriously the destination of your sin, and that you would turn from it and turn to Christ for forgiveness and everlasting life. And so we've seen that James doesn't want us to be deceived by giving us truth about ourselves. We certainly will be tempted. We're to blame for our temptations. We are the victims of our own temptation. And our temptations ultimately lead to death. And as we closed that section thinking about God and His grace for us, I want us to close the sermon all together by doing the same. James gave us truth about us. But in verses 17 and 18, he gives us glorious truth about God. Here are the verses. Every good thing given... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It's true that our hearts are egregiously bad, As sinners. But we can't lose sight of our God who is marvelously good. In the midst of our trials and temptations, when all else seems lost, God is still there and He is still the same. And James does not want us to be deceived about either point. So, first, James tells us that God is the giver of every good gift, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And the contrast there is so clear, isn't it? Every wicked temptation is from within, but every good thing is from above. This alone is worthy of our meditation. You could live for your sinful lusts that seek to destroy you and bring death. Or you could live for the author of every good and perfect gift. Next, James tells us that God is the Father of lights. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down down from the Father of lights. When you go out at night under the night sky and you stare into the abyss, or when you see the boiling sun lighting up the earth or setting over the horizon, when you gasp from wonder looking at a full moon, especially when it's big and In the sky. God is the father of all those lights. That's the meaning of this verse. He gives the sun its existence. He causes its brightness. He holds the moon in his hands. He numbers the stars. and He names them all one by one. Keith and Kristen Getty have a song. Consider the stars. And it says. He who made all of this. And who holds all of this. Holds you in his hands. What else do you need to make up your mind? Fall into temptation or call on the sovereign Father of light to lead you out of it. He controls galaxies. Could he maybe help you in your struggles? The third truth that James shows us about God is that he is the only one constant. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The stars move. The sun sets and rises and the shadows on the earth shift. The moon is full one night and then half the other. But with God, the Father of all these celestial lights, there is no variation. There is no shifting shadow. In the midst of trials and in the midst of temptations, our whole world can seem to shatter. And some of you are struggling very deeply because of what's going on in our country or around the world. Because so much of what we knew six months ago seems totally different today. Well, then take courage. Because the one from whom all blessings flow will never change. And lastly, James teaches us that God is our gracious Savior. Lust gives birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. But with God, He gives birth to new life. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. It said that sin brought forth death But God brings forth life. This verse, verse 18, that I just read will be the main focus of our time next week. But don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. The truth about us is that we will certainly be tempted. The truth about God is that no evil can tempt him. The truth about us is that we are to blame for every evil temptation. The truth about God is that He's to blame for every good and perfect gift. The truth about us is that our lust entices ourselves. The truth about God is that He's the sovereign, unchanging Father of lights. And only the one who can control the stars can save us from ourselves. And of course, the truth about us is that our sin leads to death. But the truth about God is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, He gives us new birth. He defeats the cycle of sin and death because He defeated death itself. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Instead, know the truth about you and know the truth about God. And as you behold the glorious truth of the gift-giving, unchanging, sovereign, gracious Father of lights, may you be so enticed to love Him and to worship Him that all temptations lose their appeal.